The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today, I'm delighted to welcome back a guest who'd been on previously, Joanne Birkenkamp. Joanne holds a master's degree in public policy from Harvard University and works for the Natural Resources Defense Council as a senior advocate in their food and agriculture program. Her work there focuses on improving the efficiency of our food system through food waste prevention, recovery, and recycling across the country. Joanne has nearly two decades of experience working in the food systems arena, including regional food systems development, consumer education, policy advocacy, and food supply chain research and development. She has worked closely with stakeholders across the food system, including consumers, farmers, distributors, food processors, retailers, food service management, and institutional buyers such as K-12 schools, childcare, and universities. Her work on food waste, which is our topic today, has been featured by National Public Radio, Today.com, the San Francisco Chronicle, the Daily Beast, and many others. Joanne is based in Minneapolis, but she's affiliated with NRDC's San Francisco office. Welcome, Joanne. It's great to be with you. It's great to have you because you are going to talk about a topic that is near and dear to my heart, and that just happens to be food waste. I heard your presentation that you gave at the National Press Foundation, and I thought that you touched on some very important topics that confuse consumers and myself, and I thought maybe you could help us understand better where food waste happens the most and how we can prevent it. So first, let's just start out by saying, How much food waste do we experience here in the United States? Most people would not know that in the United States, we waste about 40% of the food that is grown. It's a very large number. It amounts to about $160 billion a year. It's about 20 pounds per person per month. And the challenge is most of us really don't perceive that. When we're at home, we throw little bits out of our refrigerator. Something gets old or we make too much. But we never really see all of that food waste piled up to see how big it is. So a good analogy is that we waste enough food in the United States to fill the Rose Bowl Stadium every single day of the year. Wow. I read a report, this is several years ago now, that it amounted to about 1,400 calories per person per day. And I thought, gosh, that's enough to sustain a small person. And that was significant to me, especially because of the messages that I hear about this need to keep producing more, more, more. And I think we need to balance that message of heightened production with, let's step back and see what we're wasting. Well, that's right. You know, I think we like to pride ourselves in the United States on the idea that our food system is really efficient. And in some respects, that's true. But when you look at 40% of what we grow going to waste, it doesn't look so efficient. And particularly when you look at the fact that we have about 50 million people in the United States who are food insecure, those waste rates really, there's a lot of reason to be concerned about them. Now, part of the silver lining in this 
is that if we could reduce the amount of food that we're wasting by about 30% and get that food distributed to folks in need, we could meet all of the daily food needs of everyone in the United States who is food insecure. And that's just with a 30% reduction. So there's a lot of potential for good things to happen from the growing attention that's coming around food waste issues these days. Yeah. Okay, so maybe we should also look at where the food waste is mostly taking place. So uh, during your presentation at the National Press Foundation, you talked about there's waste through grocery stores, through institutions, hospitals, colleges, things like that, restaurants, and consumers. So if you would... Let's break it down for our listeners. So where are we seeing the most waste? Well, I hate to say it, but most of the waste is happening with consumers in our homes. So something like 40 to 50% of the waste that's incurred is actually happening in our homes on a day-to-day basis. And there are a lot of reasons for that. You know, we often buy too much, we cook too much, we go to the grocery store without a list, Things happen, right, although no one intends to waste as much as we do. So the consumer level is very important. Restaurants are also a major contributor to food waste, and they represent something like 25 to 30% of the food waste in the United States. So those are really the two biggest areas to focus on. Grocery stores get a lot of attention, although they're probably about 10% of the food waste, food service environments, which would be like colleges and schools and hospitals and prisons and nursing homes, they collectively are about 10%. And then the losses that happen upstream and in the processing and manufacturing sectors are actually pretty low. Hmm. So most of the losses really are happening pretty close to home. Mm -hmm. Well, that makes sense that an industry during the production process would be very efficient. I wonder about on-farm waste, so where you've got these fruits and vegetables that are not specifically or meeting the specs of a grocer, where you might have misshapen fruit or some bruised or blemished vegetables. Are they typically discarded, or do they go into the processed food distribution? You know, this is such a timely question, Melinda. It's been interesting to see on social media how many people now are thinking about, quote-unquote, ugly fruits and vegetables, right? Stuff that isn't quite pretty enough to make it into the grocery store. And there's a lot of it. Now, we don't have very good data about just how much of that there is. There has been some research in Minnesota, for instance, to suggest that it's maybe 15 or 20% of what's grown is imperfect and, and in most cases doesn't make it off the farm. It often gets plowed under or it gets harvested and then it lands in the compost pile because growers just don't have a market for that product, which is really a shame because we're talking about fruits and vegetables that are fresh and wholesome and entirely edible and they're not making it to market. Some do get donated but there's a lot of room, I think, to build more relationships between growers and the emergency food system and more of the infrastructure that would be needed to get that product both to folks in need and into commercial supply chains. Yeah, I've often thought, wouldn't it be great if there was a way to get workers to go to the farms, take some of these, I'm thinking of tomatoes right now, right? So tomatoes that might have not a rotten spot, but say a blemish and turn those immediately into some sauce and have a canning facility right there so that you'd be able to incorporate some of these foods into the food supply rather than sending them to a landfill at worst. I mean, compost, okay, at least it's going back to the soil, but I hate to see things going into the landfill. 
Absolutely. And you know about 95% of our food waste in the United States that goes through our municipal solid waste system does get landfilled. Yeah. 95%. The portion that's composted is actually quite small. But on this point about processing some of those fruits and vegetables, I would love to see more of that. What we have seen in the processing sector over a number of decades is that that capacity has gotten increasingly consolidated and those companies have gotten bigger and bigger and fewer and fewer communities have a way to link their farm production with a way to add value to it and to preserve it, right? Because part of our challenge is that, for instance, where I live in Minnesota, the harvest season is pretty short, right? We've got a lot of production for a couple of months and then it's done So we need more ways to get that surplus product processed so that people can use it and also so that farmers can generate some returns from that, right? We want to see them making a living and farming sustainably and producing our food into the future as well. Yeah, absolutely. Brian Wansink, who's got the Food and Brand Lab at Cornell, did a study years ago also looking at consumer-level waste and where some of that comes from. And I will never forget reading about how People will buy certain ingredients for a special recipe. You know, you wouldn't normally buy the ingredient, but you want to make this recipe. And then for whatever reason, you don't get around to making that recipe. And that that was a significant source of food waste. And I know I am to blame as well for that, where I don't necessarily have an alternative recipe where I can use this ingredient. So let's jump into the consumer side now for a moment and just say, What are some ways that consumers can pay better attention to their personal waste streams? Sure. So it's important to keep in mind that roughly two-thirds of our challenge at home comes because we buy too much. And roughly a third of the problem happens when we just cook too much. So on the issue about buying too much, it's interesting to note that there's industry data showing that about 55% of purchases in grocery stores are impulse buys. Oh, interesting. They weren't planned. Yeah, (laughs) about 55%. So, you know, a lot of us are going to the store and we kind of get there and then we think about what we want to get and we're swayed by the fact that there's a two-for-one deal or something is on sale. I mean, it's easy to be influenced by that kind of thing and to purchase more than you need. Yeah. So I think that's a pretty big factor for a lot of people. And NRDC has done some research with consumers in both Nashville and Los Angeles, and our researchers went to the grocery store with them. They came home and unpacked the groceries. They watched them cook. They looked in their trash cans. And it was very interesting. I mean, we often heard people talk about how committed they were to using coupons or that they would drive across town to get a deal or something was really a steal because it was two for one, so they got extra. But so often they would then say, I just had too much, and I couldn't use it fast enough. I was going to cook like you described, and then... You know, we went out for dinner or something else happened. So I think this issue around buying too much is something that we can all really think about. And things that help are, for instance, just making a list before you go to the grocery store. Yeah. Yeah, only about a quarter of consumers go to the store with a list. Wow. And the interesting thing is that those shoppers tend to shop less frequently. They don't have to make as many trips to the grocery store because they know what they need and they get it when they go. And they tend to have lower grocery bills. Hmm. because they're buying less on impulse. So in a lot of ways, these challenges around reducing our food waste are also really opportunities to use our food budget a little bit more economically. Mm -hmm. 
I think when, when people think of it that way, it'll actually be a pretty attractive strategy. I agree with you. You're always looking at the pocketbook as a motivator. Because of my degree came from the College of Home Economics, right? We, years ago, had so many strategies that we taught, or we were taught, and then, of course, taught consumers. And, of course, going to the grocery store with a list was one of them, but the other one was not going to the grocery store hungry and not (laughs) taking young children with you to the grocery store, if at all possible. And certainly not young children when they're hungry. That's like, that's a double whammy. The worst of all worlds. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. And just being aware of how we are manipulated, the impulse buys at the checkout. You're standing there and you've got a two-for-one deal on candy bars or the end caps of supermarkets where you've got a lot of the those deals that seem irresistible. They seem to attract shoppers and we buy more when they're there. It's true. I think we're also swayed by very large package sizes. Yeah, Right? That they're very large. It's more than you really think you're going to need, but it, you know, there it is. That's the form that it's available to you in, and it looks like a really good deal. And it's, you know, you can understand why one would purchase something like that, and yet we often saw in our research that people were saying, you know, it looked like a great deal, but then when I wasted half of it, I realized it, it wasn't such a great deal. Mm-hmm. So you, that's the challenge. You mentioned coupons. And I want to get back to that because I, too, think that coupons are only beneficial if the consumer had intended to buy that product anyway. But when it becomes, you know, I've got this coupon, so I'm going to buy it, I'm not so sure that that is so smart. Well, sometimes we purchase things that really don't correspond with what we're going to cook. Yeah, Right? We have a good intention of preparing a given dish, but then it doesn't happen for various reasons. And I think another factor is, you know, when you're in the grocery store, you have a coupon in your hand, you can see how much you're going to save. You know, there are price tags on things. You're very aware of what the cost is when you're at the grocery store and about the opportunity to get deals. But when we throw food out at home and you go through your your refrigerator and you pitch, you know, the remaining third of a jar of whatever it is or the lettuce that you didn't quite get around to making salad with, the price tag isn't attached to it anymore. Right. And so it becomes very easy to kind of cast food out with even seeing if it's still good or not because you're not looking at the cost. And so the cost of the food we waste is often pretty hard to perceive, whereas the idea that you're getting a deal in the grocery store is pretty visible Uh for most of us. And I think that's part of the disconnect about why folks don't want to buy food and waste it, and yet often that is what we do. Yeah, that's an excellent point. Listeners, if you're just joining us, you're tuned into Food Sleuth Radio, where we are speaking with Joanne Birkenkamp. She works for the Natural Resources Defense Council as a senior advocate in their food and agriculture program, where her work focuses on improving the efficiency of our food system and reducing food waste. Okay, before we leave the consumer side and get into more of the industrial challenges and national challenges, I just want to throw one question out to you, and that has to do with consumers who have this leftover mentality. You know, I grew up where we ate leftovers, but there are people who for some reason are reluctant to do so, and I don't know if you've done any research on that, but how do we help people understand that it's really a valuable trait to be resourceful, and there is a level of shame with throwing away perfectly good food. Well, that's a very interesting phenomenon. 
We also found in our research that that people do have a certain degree of shame around wasting food, and yet I think shame is not a very motivating feeling Mm -hmm. for most people. It's not a good feeling. I think the sense that you want to provide good food to your family, you want to have an abundance of it, you want to offer options to your kids. You know, you may have multiple members of your family who like different things, and so you're keeping a lot of different foods in the house. All of those are really good intentions, but I do think if we shop a little more carefully, we plan a little more carefully, and as you say, you know, if you have leftovers, have it for lunch the next day, right? Right. Educate your kids to the idea that we cooked it, it's great food, we might need to have it a second time. That's a cultural phenomenon, and I look at my own grandparents they did not waste a thing, mm-hmm. right? That was that was cultural. It was economic. It was tough times. You just you were not wasteful, and I think here in the United States we have kind of moved to a different sort of orientation, and people have been, become a little more comfortable with waste. But I think one of the things that we really need to shift is kind of the, the cultural acceptance of waste. And I would give you an analogy: back in the '60s, before some of those really iconic public awareness campaigns around littering, mm-hmm. it was more or less okay to throw your leftover you know, cheeseburger out the window of your car. Mm-hmm. And if you looked at the state of our freeways and our highways in the United States in the 60s, it was really a mess. There was a lot of littering that, that happened. And then when you moved into the 70s, we had more consumer education and awareness, awareness raising around the importance of not littering. And the ethics and the ethos around that really shifted, and now the rate of littering is much lower. And I think that was really just about people becoming aware of the issue and just saying, okay, I can change my ways. You know, find a way to throw it into the trash can and not out in a public park or on the highway. And so with food waste, I think we're now really at the precipice of awareness changing and people thinking a little bit more about how can I reuse those leftovers? How can I be a little bit more careful about how I cook and what I buy? And a recent study came out from the Center for a Livable Future that really talked about what would motivate people to waste less. And it was very interesting because the first factor was that people wanted not to waste money, which is great. And among parents who were surveyed, the second most common reason was that they wanted to set a good example for their kids. Mm. So I do think people realize that wasting is not a good thing. They know that there are people in their communities who are without enough food, and people don't feel right about that. So if we can help people identify some very practical, easy ways that they can reduce their waste and probably save money in the process, it's all to the good. Mm -hmm. And I wonder if people are more likely to waste food that is perceived as being cheaper versus something that cost more and had more of a value. Well, I think it's true that we're careful with what costs us money. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right? So to the extent that food is underpriced or, you know, you get deals and then you feel less compunction about wasting it, that certainly, I think, can contribute to how people feel about it. Yeah. Valuing our food is important, and we need to teach our kids to value food as well. Mm-hmm. One of the things that really bothers me is when I receive a report about a national recall, and I'm sure you probably subscribe to the same list where you get these printouts of so many pounds, and I'm talking about 90,000 pounds of, say, chicken nuggets might be disposed of because a machine broke and there were little pieces of blue plastic scattered throughout. 
and this is just one that I'm thinking of, or where hamburgers may be contaminated with E. coli, or where peanut butter is contaminated with salmonella. All of that food has to be brought back to a central point, and I believe most of it goes to the landfill, although I think that some of it uh, also could be turned into dog food or pet food at some point. I'm not clear on what happens to all of this recalled food. Well, you know, my understanding is that uh, that product is generally destroyed mm-hmm. if you've got food safety problems with it, which I think in many cases probably is an appropriate response because you don't want that right. circulating where it might be consumed by people. You know, and I think the broader challenge with food safety is I think we can all agree we all want safe food, right? You don't want people to be at risk. We also want to have policies and practices related to food safety that don't inordinately contribute to waste. So there's a place for some balance there and how that is all regulated and how it's carried out by industry. Mm-hmm. Well, I don't always think that the true cost of these recalls are accounted for. So, for example, you know, we may hear about a certain cost of a big food recall, but are we also calculating or figuring in the cost of the natural resources that went into producing that food. I don't know that we really can get our heads around the total or true cost of some of these vast recalls. And that's true of all the food that we waste, that whole 40%. Mm-hmm. I think for most of us, we don't think for one thing about where the food goes when we pitch it at home or when we leave plate waste in a restaurant, for instance, we eat two-thirds of what came on our plate and then the rest of it goes somewhere, and most of us really never see that. You know, most of it does go to a landfill where then it emits methane, which is very powerful greenhouse gas, which is not a good thing. And we're seeing in many parts of the country that landfilling is becoming more expensive. It's increasingly difficult to site new landfills. It's not a happy outcome. And when we waste food, it's not only the food itself that gets wasted, but it's all of the agricultural chemicals, it's the labor, it's the water, it's the land that goes into growing that food that also gets wasted. Mm-hmm. So it's really something to consider. you know. Yeah. And I think for most of us, we get food at the grocery, we eat it, we pitch a part of it, and that's kind of the end of the story. But there really are a lot of consequences environmentally as well as socially when you think about the number of people in the United States who are in need when we have such abundance and scarcity at the same time. Yeah, I also want to talk a little bit about these dates that manufacturers put on products because they are very confusing. Many times the numbers that are printed on a can or a bottle don't make any sense to me. I mean, sometimes, you know, you've got a sell by date or a use by date, and I'm not sure that consumers really have a good grasp on what that truly means. But then there are also these vaguer series of numbers that make no sense to most of us. So do you want to talk a little bit about some of those codes? Sure. So the date labels on food are really a topic of, there's just a lot of confusion. So there are basically two kinds of dates that commonly appear on food. One is a sell-by date, and then there's basically everything else like enjoy by or use by or freshest before or freshest by. But with sell-by dates, those are really a message from food manufacturers to retailers about 
when they need to sell that product so that when the consumer gets it home, it will still have a good shelf life. So it's really a message to retailers, not to consumers. Now, all those other dates like used by or best by, those are aimed at consumers. But unfortunately, what we found is that most people interpret them to mean that the food is no longer safe once that date has passed. When in fact, manufacturers put the dates to indicate when the product is at peak freshness. It's really a quality date. It is not about food safety. And unfortunately, there is really widespread confusion about what the dates mean. Mm-hmm. And I think that leads a lot of people, you know, to go through their refrigerator, they see a date, and they just pitch it. So there's a lot of confusion, and I think it contributes to a lot of waste. Yeah, I agree. Okay, we just have a few minutes left, and I do want to talk a little bit about the 15-year goals that our federal government is setting forth to reduce food waste, and also if we can squeeze in a little discussion about what other countries are doing right that we might learn from. Sure. So there's a very interesting process going on actually globally right now through the United Nations, in which the United States is a part, to set a whole set of sustainability goals through the year 2030, and they're following up to a set of goals that were established in the year 2000 that are ending now in 2015, and now these new goals are going to be put in place that will run through 2030. So for the first time, they include a specific goal around food waste reduction. So it looks like the draft proposal will be quite ambitious. We're seeing numbers of around 50% reduction goals over a 15-year period, which is significant. That is ambitious. It's a good thing. It's an important goal that's being set kind of at a multilateral level. And then we'll see where the United States lands. You know, I think there's a lot of thinking now about what's possible here in the United States and what those targets might look like. Mm -hmm. You had mentioned during the press forum that the U.K. was a standout country in terms of reducing food waste. What are they doing uniquely that's different? So the U.K. really, I have to say, they are ahead of us by about 10 years. They have been quite committed to food waste reduction for a long time. So they have set up an organization called RAP UK that is affiliated with their national government that is really empowered with doing a lot of work on food waste reduction, including things like even getting really solid numbers on how much food is being wasted in the United Kingdom. So they have done things in the U.K. like policy efforts to prevent organic material like food and yard waste from going into landfills. Mm -hmm. It needs to be shifted over into composting or anaerobic digestion, which is another way of processing food waste and other organic waste. So they're really very conscious about if it's going to waste, let's at least keep it out of the landfill. They also have done a lot of work to reduce waste at the residential level, And they actually were able to reduce residential food waste by about 21% over a five-year period. So, you know, when you look at these national targets, some of them embracing a goal of uh, 50%, the U.K. is really demonstrating that that kind of thing is feasible if we get serious and if we engage people in the process and give people a way to participate and contribute to being part of the solution. Well, Joanne, this has been really interesting, and I want to direct people to the Natural Resources Defense Council website, which is simply www.nrdc.gov. 
nrdc.org because you've got a great website specifically about food facts and how your scraps add up and reducing food waste that can save money and resources. So that's a great tool for people to use if they want to learn more. I want to thank Joanne for joining us. We've been speaking with Joanne Birkenkamp. She works for the Natural Resources Defense Council as a senior advocate in their food and agriculture program where her work focuses on reducing food waste and making our food system more efficient. I want to thank our listeners for joining us, and I want to remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. Joanne, thank you so much for being my guest. It's a pleasure. Thank you, Melinda. Melinda.